Welcome to Educational Alpha. I'm Bill Kelly, CEO of Kai Association and your host, bringing you on the ground conversations with business leaders, educators, and industry colleagues from around the globe. Educational Alpha is sponsored by iCapital, the financial technology company with the mission to power the world's alternative investment marketplace. Part innovator, part educator, and part navigator of the alternatives industry, iCapital offers intuitive, scalable digital solutions that have transformed how private market and hedge fund investments are bought and sold. With iCapital, financial advisors, wealth managers, and asset managers around the world now have access to everything they need to deliver the return and diversification potential of alternatives to high net worth investors. To learn more, visit iCapital.com. In this episode, Bill hosts Sarah Samuels, a partner at NEPC. Sarah shares her journey from an administrative assistant to a senior role in the investment world, discussing the importance of getting into the game and embracing responsibilities. They explore the evolving landscape of private markets, the impact of geopolitical risks, and the significance of financial education. Sarah also talks about her children's book, Braving Our Savings, aimed at teaching financial fluency to young readers. Listen in. Sarah Samuels, welcome to Educational Alpha. Thank you, Bill. It's great to be here. Uh, It's my pleasure. I'm trying to think when we last were together, it's been quite some time. We don't live or work very far apart, but maybe we move in different directions. But I appreciate you coming on. And we'll talk about how this came about. It was in the most unusual of ways, but it underscores somebody that is going to be an outstanding guest. And maybe I'll start by having you introduce yourself. And as we were talking about in the green room a moment ago, Career-wise, you hit the trifecta of what I would describe as the ultimate panel I look for in everything we discuss, which is to have an allocator view and then the GP view, but then a consultant in between. And you sat in all three seats in different varieties of roles and most recently very senior roles. So maybe a little bit in your background and we'll take it from there. Absolutely. Thank you so much for that introduction. And so I'm Sarah Samuels. I'm a partner at NEPC, which is a consulting firm with $1.6 trillion in assets under advisement and management. In my job today, I oversee our investment manager selection team. So we spend all of our time finding great ideas to put in client portfolios from private markets to hedge funds to anything long only. But my career started with non-traditional beginnings. So I was a German major at the University of New Hampshire. I had no idea this industry existed and I had no connections or ins when it came time to find a job or anything like that. And so my first job was at Wellington and it was as an administrative assistant. And I had two job opportunities handed to me. One was to be an administrative assistant at Wellington, and the other was to be a fund accountant at a large bank. And I asked some people what the right move was, and they said, go to the place with the best reputation, worry about title later. And it was one of the best decisions that I ever made. So joined Wellington as an admin and sort of fell in love with the industry right away, decided that I really wanted to pursue more here. And what they said to me was, you want to be promoted, go talk to us after you've got your CFA and your MBA and your Kaya. So I did. I started to pursue all three of those things, not all at the same time. And in 18 months or so, I became an analyst at Wellington. And fast forward a little faster going through the career, I wanted to actually manage the money and learn more about trading. 
and implementing. So I went to a different asset manager to become an associate portfolio manager, which was on the quant side. And I learned how to build quant models and trade and be in an entrepreneurial small place. Learned that I loved that. But it was a little too short-term focus for me. And so I knew I wanted to be a longer-term investor. And opportunity came knocking at Mass Prim, which was the state pension fund, and joined Mass Prim had way more responsibility than I should have early in my career because it's an amazing opportunity to really sink your teeth into some important work. And it was a very entrepreneurial place, which is really cool. I loved my time there. And I was at Prim for six years, ultimately culminating in being deputy chief investment officer for the last few years. It's a large pool of assets, about $100 billion today. Then I went to Wellesley College to stick with the allocator side of things, but to really beef up my alternatives and my venture capital knowledge. And so helped manage the endowment there. Was there for a couple of years, lots of travel to China and all sorts of annual meetings and a really sophisticated high quality venture portfolio and private markets portfolio. And then NEPC asked me if I would think about joining the organization. I was a client of NEPC's for six years. And I said, of course, I couldn't pass it up. And so that's where I am today. And it's been a wonderful experience. Well, uh, excellent tour. Congratulations. And I just want to put a bold underscore to a couple of things you said early on, which we have listeners from all over the world at all various portions of their career. And I do talk to a lot of younger professionals coming into this industry for the first time. And I think two things I wrote down, Sarah, one is that you got to get in the game. And if you believe in yourself, success and luck do correlate. And at very few of us, you and myself included, get our dream job right out of college. And I'm not saying settle for second best, but get in the game, get in the game early and then believe in yourself. So that's one. And then the other one I found so very interesting is you said you have way more responsibility. I think it was with Mass Prim than you should have. And I think that's another important lesson that I just want to underscore as well is that when you have things thrust upon you, Take them, figure them out. If you fail, fail forward as the saying goes. And I think you're living proof that both of those work and can work quite well. Thank you. I agree with all of those things. Yes. I'm going to mention it here, but I'm going to come back to it more wholesomely later on in the discussion. But as I said in the opening, conventional guests, I say, and you would be this route that look at what Sarah's accomplished at a top consulting firm, this trifecta positions, great guest. But I was sitting there over the holidays where a little bit of downtime and I'm Maybe a social media native on LinkedIn, certainly not on Instagram. I have my kids and a couple of close friends and that's it. But something popped up about a children's book that you wrote. And and I thought that was very interesting. And I definitely want to cover that. But that was a foray in what led to this discussion. So we'll deal with maybe the more mundane private markets. But I want to spend substantial time on that endeavor, both braving our savings and then this 30 seconds of bravery. But getting back to your current, I guess you have two day jobs as an author now too, but the one now with NEPC. The private markets have gotten to be a very busy place. I think they're more efficient now than they ever were. It's been the tale of two cities to some degree as we came out of the end of 2022. Everybody was talking about this disparity of valuations where you had the S&P and the all-country world index maybe drew down 20, and the proxy for the private markets was flat. And we're not going to know what the proxy for the private markets is for the end of this past year, 23, until another couple of months, even perhaps. But we know the all-country world index, and I've used this term, had melted up 22%. It's the most uncomfortable 22% bull market I've ever sat in. But I suspect 
the the public proxy would be less. So the denominator effect nobody's talking about anymore and valuations are less of an issue. But as we come out the other side, there's opportunities there, there are challenges, and now we're in the midst of democratization. Everybody wants wealth management, access to wealth management assets. So there's a lot there to digest and respond to, but maybe your view of the current landscape of the private markets from your current perch. Well, private markets have become so much more prevalent in client portfolios over the last 20 years from something that was a nascent industry and you know David Swenson trailblazing to something that is now very common. And there are lots of dollars. There's a lot of dry powder and there are a lot of people who are backing up the truck and really allocating to private markets in a big way. And we still believe in private markets. What I will say is I do not think that we're actually through the worst of it when it comes to private markets. So in many instances, I would say that 2023 was the year of kicking the can down the road. We could take it by asset class, but for the most part, we haven't really seen valuations reflect the realities of what these companies are dealing with, these underlying portfolio companies. So number one, we know that fundraising is harder, and that is a reflection of LPs having less liquidity and maybe being a little bit fearful. So GPs can't raise funds every 18 months and be 50% oversubscribed like they had then in the years leading up to it. When you look by strategy type, so you've got venture capital, really didn't see a tremendous amount of down marks. We saw some down marks and some down rounds, but most of these companies had raised enough capital to have a 12 to 18 month runway. Those runways are going to run out this year in many cases and some next year. They're going to need to come back to the market. And when they do that, they're going to need to price their companies, which when you think about private market valuations and how GPs hold these companies, in many cases, it's the last round of financing. And so when they come back to market, there are likely going to be some down rounds, which will flow through to valuations necessarily. Real estate, nothing really has been transacting. And the real estate companies and underlying real estate assets have been okay. They've been able to muddle through 2023, but we think that some hands are going to be forced, whether it's by banks or by GPs who need to actually transact and test the market in 2024. And then when we think about buyouts, it's sort of the same story. We are seeing a lot less leverage being put on new deals. And those that really levered up are going to suffer if they aren't generating enough cash flow to meet their interest payments. So historically in buyouts, it's really been a growth at any price type of investment strategy. And today, really, I think GPs are going to be focused much more on free cash flow as well as growth. And then finally, private debt. You know, there's so many other areas we could go into, but private debt is really important. There is a lot of capital being raised. Banks have stepped away. Bank retrenchment has meant that we are seeing private debt players step in to provide financing. And it's really, like you said, the tale of two cities, two markets, two stories. Dollars that are already in the ground in private debt strategies are probably going to be strained. And this is a function of marks coming down and difficulties that companies are having. Dollars put in the ground today and going forward in all areas, actually, we're really excited about. We think that this is a really interesting time to be either a lender or to be putting dollars to work at a bit more depressed valuations than they have been in the past. One thing that people look at a lot in private debt is default rates, which have plateaued. They're not going up like they were. But I think that masks what's really happening under the hood, which is that we're going to be seeing a lot of creative restructurings happening, which may not make their way to default numbers. So two follow-ups, both uh, private debt and then also on private equity. So on private debt, I'm a big consumer of the Howard Marks memos. He's got, I think, a middle-of-the-road agenda. He's just pro-transparency, and I do like the way he writes. And in one of his recent memos, he reminded us 
that for 40 years, 1980 to 2020, interest rates were either in cyclical decline or exceedingly low, aka zero. So most of our working careers as professionals have been in that environment. And when you think about allocating to a GP in the private debt space, and I agree with everything you said, the banks are not in this space anymore. If you want to get an adjustable yield and a capital stack placement and good collateral, it is the place to be. But how important is it when you think about allocating to a private credit manager that does not have experience with workouts? Because these problems will come, they have to come. And how do you think about that in your current role? That's exactly right. We want to make sure that they have workout capabilities and that they've done this before. So while they may not have been investing 40 plus years ago themselves, there have been many cycles of stress and distress where they can really prove their chops. But not every GP is going to have that. And then when we think about like if they needed to actually take over an asset, would they be equipped to actually manage that? So we want to make sure they have enough lawyers and experience on staff to be able to handle that. And the other is that when it comes to like managing people and culture and teams, as well as evaluating GPs, when we think about giving them our clients capital, anyone under the age of 36 or 37 has not lived through a full market cycle. It's really been a time period of everything they touch goes up and to the right which isn't great from a training perspective and from a sort of stress wood perspective, like building that muscle, understanding how things behave when there are periods of stress. And so I think it's more important now than ever for the senior, more seasoned people who invested pre-2008 to be elbow to elbow and teaching the more junior or mid-level people what it means to be in this type of market. And that sometimes not doing a deal is the right thing. Sometimes we speak with GPs, especially if we speak with the junior people, if they hadn't been doing deals over 2022 or 23 and had discipline and deploying capital, they were kind of freaking out because it's human nature to want to move forward and to do things and to be active. But that may not always be the right thing. And I think you having seen this from the other side and and an endowment of foundation like Wellesley versus Prim, they're both asset owners, but two very different beasts to some degree because the demographics and the call and capital are very, very different. So it becomes much more complicated, particularly for a public pension plan, as demographics continue to move more toward the older end and knowing that you have to be more liquid to some degree. So it does present incremental challenges. Just a follow-up on the private equity side. And in the Kaya curriculum and in reality, we talk about commitment strategies. And if I want to be 15% in private equity, maybe I have to commit 20 because I've got capital calls, I've got capital distributions, there's cash sort of coming back in or out and you have history to look at. I don't know if a commitment strategy is now in a museum as an antique and an artifact because The cash flow back to you is not what it once was, and exits have been challenged, and the IPO market, I think for all intents and purposes, has dried up. So how do you, at NEPC or an allocator, how are they thinking about a commitment strategy, and then how does it relate to an exit environment that is not going to be perhaps as friendly as it was the last several years before 2022? Great question. So the first thing I'd say is for any LP out there, you really want to look at your experience in other market cycles. So for example... Great news is that in times like these, you're not going to see as much capital getting called because deals may not be getting done at the same pace that they were. So that's less of a strain on your balance sheet and your overall portfolio. Unfortunately, distributions usually fall by even more than the drop in capital calls. And so really making sure that your model 
whether it's the Yale model and the Takahashi and Alexander model, or if it's something else that you're buying off the shelf from one of the third-party providers, make sure that they're incorporating that into their assumptions. And my guess is that they are. But if you've built your own model, make sure that you're incorporating some of those dynamics. The other is when you're thinking about commitment strategies. You mentioned if you want to get to 15%, perhaps shooting for 20 and overcommitting. That is still a valid strategy if you're in build-up mode. So if you're in the phase of ramping up your allocation, which many of our clients still are, sophisticated clients are not in a fear-driven place. They're still continuing to allocate capital, which we think is a best practice. If you're building up your allocation, then it does still make sense to overcommit by 1.4 or 1.5 times. Once you're stable, you will not need to overcommit to that degree. And then finally, when it comes to commitment pacing, there are some really important things to keep in mind to make sure you don't get out over your skis. There are a few heuristics or rules of thumb, and it really depends on each institution, but I would encourage you to think about liquidity guardrails. So thinking about how can we ensure that we're not getting out over our skis and committing more than we can really afford to, or get in a position where we might have a huge amount of capital calls all at one time. Do we have the liquid investments to put that to work? In general, I would say don't put more than one and a half or so percent of an increase into your models per year to private markets faster than that, and you'll probably get over your skis. And a couple of things you said just to follow up on that. So I would think, and you could take the other side of this, going into 2022, if you were in build-up mode, as you said a moment ago, that might be a very difficult place to be because the EBITDA multiples in the way in are very, very high. Access to top quartile managers is very, very difficult. But now it's kind of interesting if you're in build-up mode, I would think, because maybe some of these managers that you couldn't get to and maybe more accessible either directly or there are opportunities in the secondary market as well. So there's always opportunity. Out of stress comes alpha because alpha is found in these periods of unrest and dislocation. So what is the positive side of this? And maybe some of it I said you answered in the prior question, but I, I think there are still some very good opportunities if you're coming into the space for the very first time now. Well, if we look back to 22, so It was very difficult to get good access at that time, for sure. And everyone was oversubscribed. At that time, we also were beginning to see at the end of 22, some clients really hit some pretty serious liquidity thresholds that they had set for themselves, whether that is being overweight to private markets relative to a tolerance band or a range that had been approved by their governing body, or if it was a liquidity metric, like I mentioned earlier, like uncalled capital as a percentage of NAV or as a percentage of monthly liquidity. So we saw even some public pension funds say, we're going to actually pause on commitments until we figure this out at the end of 22. If you were in ramp up mode, you've got your more mature and seasoned programs who are at their target allocations, they became overweight and they have to do something about that. But the folks who were bringing up their exposures actually wanted higher allocation and they were okay with that denominator effect creating an increased allocation. But 23 kind of undid that with the return of public markets. And so when you think about opportunities to access GPs today, they are there. So GPs, some are struggling to raise, some are coming back to raise and getting what they're looking for, for their hard cap, but they're used to being 50% oversubscribed. And so really taking the opportunity, if you're an LP, to reach out to the aspirational GPs that you never imagined you would have access to is a great thing to do. And to tell your story, why are you a good LP? What is your mission? And many GPs are going to be looking to align with smart LPs who are sticky capital, who understand what they do and who are doing something to make the world a better place. So it's a great time. 
And maybe one or two other things before we turn to Sarah Samuel's author. So I had the great pleasure, and there's so many opportunities I get in this job, and I feel blessed uh, having it. I was asked to come in and meet with a large regulator. I won't mention them by name, but they're very interested in my views on this market, which is great. And I said, it's not so much my views, but it's a compilation of the Sarah Samuels I get to talk to and can put a lot of different things in place. And we talked about some of the opportunities and challenges in this marketplace and Certainly regulation falls in the middle of it. And I say to any regulator, you have a very difficult job. And there's another Howard Marks memo on regulation where it's this pendulum between letting the capitalist market and the instincts prevail versus knowing that that may not be the best outcome and then we overregulate and we swing back and forth again. But I think this really comes down to just transparency. And I think transparency has its seasons as well. And I think we have to do more on that front. And again, you have sat in a lot of seats and it doesn't have to be any PC's house view, maybe your view on where are we in the state of the union of transparency between LP and GP? So we've seen the increased regulation in hedge funds many years ago, right? And it sort of changed the nature of the amount of transparency and the reporting that they were doing. And I've said for a long time that it's just a matter of time until we see that happen in in private markets. And we are seeing that happen with some of the proposed regulations and approved regulations that are going to be coming out. GPs have some time to roll those out over the next 18 months or so. But it is going to be more regular reporting and reporting on more frequent things. So while it will be more of an onus operationally on GPs to provide these types of things, I do think it's in the best interest of everybody, especially when it comes to how fees are being paid. Yeah. And I think ultimately, I think it comes down to just do the right thing when nobody's looking. And that's a hard principle to operate under, but it's how I always tried to conduct myself. And I know you as well. And maybe literally turning the page to Sarah Sam, who's the author. So I find this so very interesting. I don't know too much about it. I know you've got two children. I've got five myself. I wish you'd written this book 33 years ago when my youngest was born. But I very much feel, having seen curricula over the course of my kids' world, and and it seems like there's maybe more of an emphasis on phys ed. And my youngest son, Will, is a freshman in college right now, and he's got a phys ed requirement. And I'm saying, where's the financial literacy requirement? And even when you get to college, it's kind of too late because they've already formed their opinions. They're on Robin Hood and everything else. So I know the title of the book is Braving Our Savings, but it's interesting if you go to the website, which I think is called 30 Seconds of Bravery, very interesting. You talk about the book and it's a movement at the same time. So maybe start with the book. What prompted you to do this? Obviously, you're not sitting there with a lot of free time, I suspect, but what were you looking to accomplish? And then we can talk about the movement itself. Well, I would say to your point, certainly this is not something that was part of a plan or it kind of just happened to write this book. And I would say it's a bit of a calling. And the reason for it is, number one, I have these two little girls who are six and now 10. When they were six and nine, we started to talk about money. Why was this important for me to have these conversations with my girls? It was really a couple of things. One is, as I mentioned, I had no exposure to this industry and started as an administrative assistant. But even pulling further on that thread, I had very little exposure in terms of how to approach money. I grew up in a small town. My family had a long-standing history of a corroding thread of fear being handed down financially from one generation to the next. So as long as we can remember, people were struggling to make ends meet in my family. 
to the point that I remember my parents saying, someday, if you're really lucky, maybe you'll be a bank teller in the small town that I grew up in. And my dad used to iron wrapping paper on Christmas night to use it for next year, which is very much a depression era thing that had been handed down. So they did their best. I really could have benefited from a bigger tribe. And I believe we are tribe-driven people. And children are really only shown what their parents show them to a certain degree when they're young. And I really would have liked to have more examples and more education when I was younger. So that's one part of this story. And the other is that four years ago, I got divorced. My girls were three and six. And I didn't know if I'd be able to stand on my own two feet. And I could because of this amazing industry. And other children should be able to have the experience that I had, which is going from administrative assistant to partner, ringing the New York Stock Exchange closing bell, from being somebody who definitely wouldn't have been able to stand on my own two feet if I didn't find this industry based on the guidance I was given by my family to someone who could. And so I said, girls, you're going to know about this stuff. It's really important because you need to be able to take care of yourself one day. So we started the process of, I said, I'll buy you each any stock you want, but you have to do the research and I'll do it with you and you have to enter the trade. And so we did. And I thought that it would be kind of easy. You know, we do this for a living, Bill, and we know about financial concepts. So I started to explain them to these six and nine-year-olds and went right over their heads. So I started using different ideas and concepts and stories and phrases and analogies to see what stuck. And through that, I learned how six and nine-year-olds can process this. The morning after my six-year-old entered her trade, and she's very contrarian, never offered to make her own lunch. She came down the next morning and said, mama, I'm going to make my own lunch today. I'm an investor now. And her chest puffed up and she had confidence like I'd never seen. And she believes still that she's an investor. And so she is. And that first step of fear, I can't do this. This isn't for girls. This isn't for me. That intimidation, it's gone. She did it. And so what I want to do here is to provide two things to people, role models and education to these young children to show them that they can do it. And I neglected to mention that when I was an admin at Wellington, you know, I really knew that I wanted to do something more. I wasn't sure if I could. I remember watching this one portfolio manager who was picking healthcare stocks and she commanded the room. She had so much respect. And it wasn't until about six months into the job that someone said to me, you know, she started as an admin too. And that just shed a light and lit a spark that kept me going for the rest of my career. And that woman was Jean Hines. And she didn't even know she was my role model, but I tried to emulate as much as I could of what she was showing through her behavior and her actions. Great story. So the book itself, what is the overall narrative? You talked a bit about teaching financial literacy through the lens of your two girls. And and I think it's awesome that they've gotten this so young and that's going to serve them well for the rest of their lives. And, and also, just as a quick aside, both my parents are born in 1930, so solidly in that Depression era. They lived very long lives. They both passed away within the last year and a half. And we're in the process of cleaning out their home over the last 15, 20 years. And it's amazing. I don't think they iron the wrapping paper, but I can absolutely relate to that. And it's amazing to see what they saved. And they were prodigious savers, more so than I think our generation is. But and maybe back to the book, I think if I could teach any investor, and you may see this in your day job, I see it all the time as well, even with the most sophisticated institutions to wealth management down to the mass affluent. The long term solves a lot of problems. Volatility is there and there's geopolitical risk. But if you can try to 
be diversified long-term solves for a lot of problems. But I don't know if that concept resonates with you, but how does that come across in the book and what lessons are you trying to ultimately teach? Absolutely. So we're talking about financial fluency here. And I say fluency because literacy implies that you learn it and then you're done. Fluency is more dynamic and it goes on forever. So being able to understand and learn new things. Financial fluency really isn't just about the numbers. It's not about the short term, to your point. It's really about behaviors and decision-making and risk-reward trade-offs and understanding how they can make better decisions, both as it relates to money and in their lives. And part of that is having this understanding of the power of compound interest and the value of doing investing for the long term. But for kids, the way that the narrative is written, the publisher tells me that it's reading at a first and second grade level. It's a story about a girl who wants something. She approaches her mom. The girl happens to be my daughter. And she says, I think I'm ready to buy this thing. Let me see how much I have in my bank account. And from there, these lessons come about. She realizes she doesn't have enough money. So there are these opportunities throughout the book. Apparently with children's books, there needs to be these mini arcs of like conflict and angst that wouldn't phase us as adults. But for kids, they need to have these sort of things constantly thrown at them and they fail and then ultimately they prevail. She has the opportunity to spend her money with her friends. She's trying to save her money to get her ears pierced. And in the near term, she has this temptation to spend the money and buy the lipstick or the nail polish with her friends. So it's not only about doing things different from those around you, being comfortable doing things different, but it's also about saving and delaying gratification. Ultimately, she invests and is able to get the money she wants to get her ears pierced. Then there's the back matter, which is another publishing term I know way more than I ever wanted to. And that's where we have a glossary of terms. We have some instructions on how to enter a trade. It gets really technical. And that's reading at more of a seventh grade level. And I would argue in a sneaky way, it's also intended to educate any parents who maybe are a little light on this knowledge. I should also mention the book comes out April 16th. So it's not yet available, but it's available for pre-order. And you can find it in the usual suspect places, Amazon, your website, et cetera. Mm-hmm. Yes. I went to the website just before we signed on, and there's an option to give your email to join and learn more about the 30 Seconds of Bravery and join the movement, which I did. So I'll learn more. Thank you. That's wonderful. Yes. And we've had some amazing people endorse the book. It's really, really uplifting to see the names and the sort of star power that believes in teaching our kids. So A-Rod, We've got a couple of Patriots players. We've got Annie Duke, Ted Seides. So it's been really Yeah, no, I saw the list. And as a Bostonian, although I'm from Yonkers, New York, it pained me a little bit to see such a star Yankee player, but that's okay. (laughs) So maybe a bit of a segue with the book. And I like financial fluency better than literacy. It's a great point that you made. You look at what's gone on during the COVID period. Everybody went home. They went on the couch. These government checks went out. And and a couple of things, many things happened. But as it relates to this conversation, a lot of these youngsters getting on Robinhood. And unbeknownst to me, my youngest son, Will, opened up a Robinhood account. He didn't ask me his help. He just went ahead and did it. And then trading cryptocurrencies, the meme stocks. There's a lot of less than perfect things coming out of that. But the fact that you now have a whole generation, regardless of reason, has gotten on to the financial grid. There's got to be some good aspects to that. We've got to make sure that they don't view this as a casino and it gets back to long-termism. But how do you view that? And then are there ways we could take those instincts and maybe channel them either through your book or other methods to keep them on the grid, keep them involved, keep them literally invested? I mean, what a gift, right? To be able to experiment and to have access to this as a young person. I certainly didn't when I was growing up. 
So let's assume that there are appropriate risk controls and that the person hasn't taken $100,000 from their parents' bank account somehow and put big stakes at play. Let's assume these are small stakes and that they can afford to take this risk because it's not enough to bring down the house. I think it's a wonderful experience for people to learn that these are risky investments that may do well, they may do poorly. And also to understand the value of money and that it doesn't come easily and that it can come and it can go. And hopefully to understand that picking things just because they're meme stock may not be the winning strategy and that more work is required. Yeah, I agree. So maybe in the remaining minutes, maybe a little slight plot twist in terms of risks in the market. And as we look toward 2024, and I know for Kaya as an example, and also for CFA, what was not in the curriculum historically has been geopolitical risk. We're in the process of introducing it. As we sit here today, I'm not sure when this will be aired, but we have a lot going on in the Red Sea, elections in Taiwan this weekend, disruption in our nation's capital, Hamas and Israel, the Ukraine-Russian war, the list goes on and on. The market seems to just shake this off. And I think these risks are real. They'll eventually, I've got to manifest themselves in supply chains or wars or other disruptions. This is something new to us as investment professionals, to most of us. And new, may, I'm not meaning this year or this quarter, but it's really manifested itself in the more recent period. How do you think about geopolitical risk as you sit in your current seat versus how you might have thought about it five years ago? Yeah, well, the isolationism is certainly a trend that's moving in the other direction from the globalization that we've been looking at for so many years and collaborative nations. And I think it's going to manifest in a number of ways, probably continued higher costs and higher volatility. And it is really tragic what's going on in many parts of the world today. Although markets don't always respond according to our emotions or feelings about the market, it can also be very perverse reactions. So it is hard to predict. But what I do know on the political side of things is that 50% of the world is going to be participating in an election this year. This is a big year for potential change in leadership. One thing the market does not like is uncertainty. So it is obviously very difficult to time these things. But to your point, it is most definitely going to be working its way into valuations and market performance. Well, the old Chinese proverb, may you live in interesting times. Some people think that's a statement of peace. It's quite the opposite. We're living in very interesting times where there's turmoil all over the place. And I think you have sort of said this throughout the discussion. I think that this is the time where alpha is created to some degree. And if you keep your head about you, stay fully diversified, stay fully invested. That's probably the best advice to weather this storm. I think that's right. And I think it's Warren Buffett who has said something along the lines of once all you need is ordinary intelligence. So once you have an IQ of about 100 or so, that's all you need to be a great investor. You just need to avoid sort of the greed and fear cycles that plague the common investor. Excellent advice. And I think a very good way to close this discussion out. So certainly, Sarah, when we post this, I'll put a link to Sarah Sim, who's the author, as well as I'll tag NEPC, a great organization I've known a long, long time. I remember Dick Charlton in my days back at the Boston Company. And, and it is a world-class organization that not so much infomercial for Kaya, but it is an organization where there's a lot of Kayas, a lot of CFAs, and professionalism defines your brand. So credit to you and your team on that. I think it's awesome. Thank you. And I wanted to also thank you for your leadership with Kaya. I mean, it is really the gold standard. And I advise so many people who I meet with and who work on my 45-person team, go get your Kaya. I promise you, you won't regret it. So you're doing great work. 
Thank you. And I would love to have a six and a nine-year-old as candidates. And it sounds like they may be up for the challenge. So yes. I will with that. <laughs> thank you. Sarah, thank you. Great to see you. Thank you for listening to Educational Alpha. I'm your host, Bill Kelly. Learn more about the Kaya Association and subscribe to the show at kaya.org. That's C-A-I-A.org. See you next time. Thank you.